please open a Bible with me to Psalm 89. Your Bible might just fall open to the book of Psalms there in the middle. We're at Psalm 89. If you're new with us and don't have a Bible of your own, then you can find the passage printed for you in your order of worship. The Psalms are the songbook for God's people. And we're seeing early in this new year that the very structure of the Psalms reminds us that God, that God is to be praised in all seasons of life, in all moments of life. Because each of the five sections of the Psalms ends with a doxology, a word of praise, announcing that God deserves all glory. And so we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 41, the conclusion, the, the blessing, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Last week we looked at Psalm 72, which ends with this doxology, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Our psalm today ends with the doxology, which you have already heard sung to you. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. See, we live in a world broken by sin, filled with sorrow. And yet God still invites us to give him praise. And Psalm 89 begins like a song of praise. If, if, you, if you end it at verse 37, it would be a song in which you could lift up your hands in joy to give praise to God. And yet notice when I read the, the way in which the tone radically shifts at verse 38. We go from, from, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever to verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. And yet, in the sorrow of life, we face that question, Oh Lord, have your promises failed? But even here, God deserves to be praised. Listen as I read selected verses from Psalm 89. This is Psalm 89, beginning at verse 1. A mascal of Ethan, the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. And now verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted the one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And now verse 35, where we continue the praise given in the relationship with David. Verse 35, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. 
His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our sorrow, in our sadness, that the the weight of your word would be truth for our souls, that your, your gospel would be a balm which brings us comfort and hope. Lord, we need you to show forth your love to us, And so we come asking you to speak to us by the power of your gospel. Lord, we are people desperate for the hope of Jesus. And so we come praying in his name. Amen. At one point this week, I had a song stuck in my head. It was from Psalm 89, and this is the song I had stuck in my head. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. I will sing. Now, some of you are nodding along. You could jump in and and sing it with me. It's a simple song that we now teach to children in Sunday school. It's Psalm 89, verse 1. The songwriter was smart enough to just take the King James Version of the Bible and set it to music to to teach us and to teach our children to sing the songs of the Lord. But you hear how upbeat it is. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I mean, it's, it's filled with joy. I mean, you could clap along. In Sunday school, you'd give each kid a tambourine and let him go to town in joy and excitement. And yet that tone which is appropriate for the first 37 verses of this psalm, would feel completely out of place by the time you get to verse 38. Because the the tone, the feel of the psalm shifts dramatically. We see the the blessing of God that that the promise to David will endure forever. His throne as long as the sun, the, the moon, it shall be established forever. And then verse 38 hits us. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. I don't think we could sing the same tune by the time we get there. There'd be a dramatic shift in the mood. But, but the very structure of this psalm is a reminder to us that in the midst of our perplexity of living in this tension, of, of hearing the great promises of God and yet feeling broken by the world, in our perplexity there is reason to give praise to God because he is the God who shows forth his love to us and his providence over us. And so our brief outline, it's an outline preached by another pastor 
a, a professor in one of our, our seminaries. He, he says, we see in the psalm perplexity, praise, and providence. And because they alliterate so well, we're just going to steal his outline. We, we feel the perplexity of this psalm. That you go from the, the, the joy of, of the steadfast love of the Lord. I mean, that phrase is repeated again and again in the psalm. We see how it begins. Look at, look at verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, speaking to God in verse 2, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. And then God responds by announcing his covenant. These are rich and beautiful words. The steadfast love of the Lord. Not a fleeting emotional high, but a sure and certain, a firm decision, a love rooted in the covenant promises of God, that he will prove himself faithful to his people. He says to, to David, David, his servant in verse 4, that he, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. There's such joy, we can sing it with tambourine in hand, with excitement for what God has done, and then we hit verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. Verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. An image of, of taking the crown off the king's head and throwing it to the ground. It's as if the, the, the psalmist is asking, God, where are you? Do your promises still stand? Because when he looks around, he, he feels like all hope is lost. There is no son of David left on the throne. Now, we know very little about the, the historical context of the psalm. It, it's written by Ethan. We know who wrote it, but we actually know very little about Ethan, except that maybe he's related to, uh, the, the one, uh, he's related to uh, uh, the, the man who wrote the psalm right before this, Heman, because they're both Ezraites, and they're mentioned in, in one other verse in the Old Testament where they are wise men, but, but not as wise as Solomon, but wise enough to be compared to Solomon. But we don't know much about his context. And, and we, we could, in the, the verses that describe the, the downfall of the Davidic king, picture the, the, the judgment that God brought upon his people when Babylon, the, the great empire, came and destroyed the kingdom. When Jehoiachin, a great, 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 great grandson of David, was taken from the throne, we, we, we have the, the language there in verse 45. You have cut short the days of his youth. He became king at 18. A, a, a son of David on the throne at 18. And do you know how long he reigned? Three months. Three months before Babylon destroyed the city and laid, led him out covered in shame, physically covered in sackcloth, taken as a prisoner to Babylon. They put a, another descendant of David on the throne as a vassal king, a puppet king to do their bidding. But the Davidic kingdom had been destroyed. And so this psalm set in the context of, of people singing it in the exile, God, where are you? There is no king left. The throne has been destroyed. The people singing to God after the return from exile, when the kingdom looks like it's, it's broken. The church singing it today. Because there's, there's a reason that Jehoiachin isn't named or that we don't know, we don't even need to know much about Ethan the Ezraite. Because this is a psalm meant for the people of God at all times. Because you feel the perplexity of wanting to give praise to God because he is great, because he is glorious, and yet feeling the brokenness of life, the, the sorrow and sadness, of, of, of longing for marriage and yet not finding it, or, or being in a marriage and thinking it will, it will meet your needs and, and being destroyed by the, the sin of your spouse. 
of, of longing for, for children, a blessing from God, and then receiving children only to, to find that they bring struggle and, and, and trial, that they, they can turn in their rebellion away from God, of a job where you feel like you're working hard, twice as hard as you were last year, maybe three times as hard and barely getting anything done. They, they, just, keep, they, they just keep letting people go and, and giving you more work, and yet you're not making any progress. You feel it in the sorrow of broken relationships. See, we understand what it is to, to be able to sing with, with joy in a broken world. This perplexity that we, we face. And yet, the very structure of the psalm reminds us that we have reason to give praise, that we can suffer in hope. We, we can think of the way that, that Peter uses the same sort of balance a reminder that we give praise to God even in suffering. Now, Peter, and, and if you flip to the very back of your Bibles, his first letter, this is First Peter. In the opening of the letter, he, he's writing to a church that's being persecuted, a church on the, the brink of, of widespread death and, and, and slaughter at the hands of, of an evil emperor, but a church that is already facing struggle, where, where jobs are being lost because to declare Jesus is Lord means you have turned your back on your own guild. You have turned your back on the emperor, and so you lose family. And, and, and yet, Peter, he, he, he writes in verse 2 of 1 Peter 1, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, writing to the churches, writing to believers. In verse 3, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like, like Psalm 89, w Peter begins with a, with a word of praise that God deserves blessing for what he has done to us. That we've received a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in, this last, in the last time. In this you rejoice. And yet... We feel the tension, the perplexity, because as Peter continues, he says, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Peter is saying? In the sorrow of and suffering of life, God deserves to be praised. Because his promises, even in your sorrow and suffering, give you hope. God's promises are kept in heaven for you. See, what Peter is doing is, is really mirroring this biblical, this biblical reminder that God deserves to be praised even when we can't understand what's happening. And that's why Psalm 89 is, is such a, a comfort to us. For the repeated, the, the repeated reminders that we must give praise to God. For his steadfast love. That, that, that phrase, and you've seen it, we've already looked at it in verses 1 through 4. But that, that phrase about God's steadfast love, about his faithfulness, is repeated throughout the psalm. Look with me at, at verse 14. That righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. It's repeated in verse 24, we heard this already, verse 24, my faithfulness, my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Or verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm. 
It, 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 we hear it again in verse 33. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Even in, even in verse 49, in that section of lament, in the lament, the, the psalmist, Ethan, comes back to those phrases. Look at verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? See, in the perplexity of our lives, we have reason to give praise. There is always, right now is always the t- right time to give praise to God. In sorrow, you can give praise to God. In, in times of happiness, you are to give praise to God. Because of God's authority over all creation, verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Because of God's greatness, there is no one else who compares to him. Verse 5, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? God is great and deserves our praise. He deserves praise because he is the one who has made a promise to David, a covenant where he has entered into a relationship, a binding relationship with, with David. God's throne is the throne which is above the king's earthly throne. God's throne lasts forever. We see it in verse 3. You've said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. That, that phrase repeated, verse 20. David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And yet, yet when we hear David's name, we're reminded of God's steadfast love. Not a love because of how great David is. Yes, we, we recognize that David is the one who, who, who killed the bear, who killed the lion, the one who, who knocked down the giant, the one chosen by God, anointed by him, the one who, who at times is said to, to have a, a heart that, that is like God's. And yet, when we think of God's steadfast love, we think not of David's greatness, but of David's sin. For when we hear that repeated those repeated words in in Psalm 89 of the steadfast love of God, the covenant made with David, it it forces us to think of of David's sin. Think of the words of Psalm 51, the way that the psalm begins. A psalm which doesn't announce the greatness of the king or his victories, but shows forth his sin, his adultery, his selfishness, his greed, his lying, his murder. Psalm 51 begins, Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. See, the reason we can give praise to God is because when we cry out to him, he forgives us. We hear those words from from Peter, that that in the death of Jesus, we have hope, that in his resurrection from the dead, we are given the promises of God. That's why God deserves to be praised, because of his greatness. In In whatever circumstances we find ourselves, and so when we, when we wrestle with the tension the, of, of living with, with perplexity in a world where God deserves to be praised, but a world broken by our sin, we, we, we need to put our trust in the providence of God. Now, that's a, a, a theological word that reminds us that God is in charge of all things. But not merely as a, as a taskmaster who, who just pushes things forward, not merely as a, a clockmaker who winds things up, but as the loving God who is involved in our lives. Because when we trust in the providence of God, we are reminded that he is a sovereign God. He is the king of all. He's the one who has authority over all, over everything in the universe. It all belongs to him. He is sovereign. But more than that, he is good. He is the one to to whom we we hear the, the, the description that his steadfast love, his faithfulness endures forever. And he is the gracious God 
who forgives sinners, who forgives even David, who forgives even me. And so we can give God praise for his steadfast love, but still we feel like his promises have failed, but it's here in the providence of God that we find our hope. And and even the way in which this psalm ends offers us a little bit of a, a reminder, a glimpse of God's promise. Now, we've heard it repeated in that phrase about God's steadfast love, about God's faithfulness. But in the, in the verses which conclude our psalm, we see in which Ethan the, the psalmist connects the word servant, how the servants of God, the anointed kings, the Davidic kings, he calls them servants. He's repeatedly called David my servant through the psalm. And how the word servant and the word anointed are brought, brought to our attention at the end of the psalm. Anointed the Messiah. It's a reminder that that even when the kings of Israel fail, God will not abandon his people. The the psalmist cries out in verse 50, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. See, there is hope for God's people. For in his providence, he has not abandoned them. He will send his servant, his Messiah, his anointed king. And yet we live in the perplexity of a world where we hear the promises of God, but we struggle to trust them. Because sometimes when we look back on on life and, and difficult things, we can say after the fact, oh, okay, I see how God was at work there. Sometimes we get a little bit of a glimpse of, oh, now I understand what God was teaching me. Now I see how God was faithful, even when, I, even when I was blind to it before. Sometimes after the fact, we get a glimpse of it, but rarely in the moment do we understand the fullness of God's providence. And that's where we need the reminders of Psalm 89, that God is faithful, that his steadfast love lasts forever. Because we, like the psalmist, cry out with, with these biblical questions of verse 46, how long O Lord, in your sorrow and pain, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then in verse 47, the psalmist admits that his life goes by very quickly. It's fleeting. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. Not only does my life go by quickly, but but the lives of everyone I know go by quickly. The, The lives of generations pass. And those might initially sound like words that are, that are hopeless. But, but think, when, when seen through the lens of God's providence, what comfort that can provide to us. Oh, my life is short, but God lasts forever. I mean, that's what, what Peter was doing in, in, in comforting the, the church in the midst of persecution. He said that, that God's power is, is here because of the resurrection. And so in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It just lasts a little while. Now, Peter doesn't mean it, 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 it only lasts a day and be gone tomorrow. No, the, the pain and the sorrow may stretch from days into weeks, from weeks into months, from months into years, from years through a lifetime. But don't you see what he's saying? The, the biblical view is that God is the one who keeps his promises. He shows his love to us. And so on the grand scale of God's eternity, then I only have to suffer a little while. Even a lifetime is but 
a little while. Now, it's sometimes repeated in the, the, in the church through history that, that, that we struggle with, with waiting on God. And it's sometimes said this way, God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. You see, that's what the psalmist is saying. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself? My life is, is so short. My, 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 it, it, it's, it's as if in, ve- in vain you, you made me. God may not come right on our time schedule. We might be checking and think that I think the train is late here. But God is always on time. Because God proves his love to us. In, the, in our perplexity, we have reason to give praise because of the providence of of God. And so the psalm begins with those words of praise, and then the very, the very uh, doxology at the end is a reminder to us. If it ended in verse 51, we might wonder, is the anointed going to come? But you and I are, are commanded in verse 52 to, to lift our voices in praise to God's anointed, to his king. The doxology, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen, is a reminder to us of God's grace and mercy. The psalm ends on a firm note of praise, taking us back to where we began. That in sorrow and sadness, we can give praise to God, for he is the one who loves us and cares for us. Ewan and Rachel rejoiced at the birth of their son. But then the nurse called them over to see his tiny hand and foot. Baby Ewan, named after his father, was missing much of his left hand just a, a misshapen thumb uh, conjoined to, to just one finger. And he was missing most of his left foot. These congenital anomalies, that's what the nurse called them, they hadn't been visible on any of the ultrasounds. Dad, Ewan, descri- describes the perplexity of his emotions. Even as we burst with happiness at the birth of our new son, a sudden, unexpected, and weighty sense of tragedy hung heavily on our hearts. Because as they called family and friends to share the good news of, of Ewan's birth, they, they then had to break this difficult news to everyone they spoke with. In a note they, they wrote to their church, Ewan and Rachel share their trust in God's steadfast love. They want to thank the church for praying for them and then give the church permission that when they meet baby Ewan, you can just say nothing at all. Or you can talk with us about it and mourn this the, the, these congenital anomalies. His parents, in writing to their, their church family, they, they explain, the gospel that we as a church celebrate week by week has proven to be a powerful source of hope and grace. We know that God has intentionally and specifically ordained this painful path as a necessary trial for you and, and for us. Yet we are wholly confident that God is acting out of love for us because he has demonstrated his unfathomable love at the cross. See, these parents understand that praise is the right response even in the midst of suffering. They ask, how do we lift our hands to worship the God who sovereignly brings pain into our lives? They explain, we can testify that this past weekend, we discovered that God's goodness still seems clear. His presence seems near. Please pray that our little son will someday joyfully lift his hands, formed and malformed, in heartfelt worship to the king who in love and mysterious providence saw fit to have him walk this path 
even when he can't know exactly why it had to be so. In our perplexity, we have reason to praise. God, in his providence, meets our needs. He keeps his promises. And so we can begin with the psalmist, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. We can walk through the perplexity of pain and reach the crescendo of praise. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. God, we ask for your blessing upon us as we feel the weight and sorrow of life. Lord, we rejoice in the hope of Jesus, our Savior, and pray, pray for the, the return of, of your anointed King. Lord, we rejoice in his arrival, in his death and his resurrection. We give you praise because he reigns as the king now, but we long for his return. And so our hearts cry out, how long, O Lord? Send us your king, our savior, our rescuer, Jesus. Lord, for those who hear your word today, I pray that you would give them faith to believe, comfort in your gospel, hope in Jesus Christ, our savior. Lord, we come to give you praise In Jesus' name, amen.